For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With their sponsorship of episode 211 of the Read to Lead podcast, FreshBooks cloud accounting software is making it easy for you to try them out with absolutely no obligation. Get access to 100% of FreshBooks features for 30 days when you visit freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. does not need another book of networking advice. The world needs a book that goes, here's how the network you're in operates. Now you can figure out what's authentic to you to navigate inside that network. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. This is the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I am your humble host, Jeff Brown, and it is my belief that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then something you have to carefully consider is reading intentionally and consistently. I think it's that important. And the Read to Lead podcast is not only going to help you narrow what I call this ever-important reading list, but bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. We have someone who fits that description to a T. His name is David Burkus, and David is the author of a brand new book called Friend of a Friend, Understanding the Hidden Networks that Can Transform Your Life and Your Career. Now, you're probably familiar with the use of the word silos in a business context and how that can can be a bad thing. I'll ask David to talk about how silos, in moderation at least, can actually be a good thing. I'll also ask him why a large network and a tight-knit team isn't as valuable as a loose network and temporary team, plus the benefits of focusing on a few of the right connections and much, much more. For fear of David smacking me upside the head if I say too much, I'll just say that I have it on good authority. You'll want to stick around to the end of our conversation today. If you run your own business, maybe you're a freelancer or you work a regular job, but you've got that hustle on the side, there's a chance that as you put the finishing touches on your taxes for this year, you were thinking, gee, I wish this were a whole lot easier. Well, there's, there's time to change that uh, when it comes tax time next year. And that all starts with incorporating FreshBooks cloud accounting software into your business. When I first launched my business, it was just a side hustle. I was working a regular job, but had this thing going on the side. And as I researched what the options were for accounting software, FreshBooks kept coming up again and again and again in the conversation. There were certainly other options, but FreshBooks intrigued me in large part because of its simplicity. And trust me, when it comes to numbers, I need simple. And so way back in 2009, I started using FreshBooks, and I've been using FreshBooks ever since. And I'm thrilled all these years later to be able to offer you through the Read to Lead podcast a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks. All of FreshBooks features at your fingertips, free for 30 days, no obligation, no credit card needed. You just go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead. That special URL just for you, freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. 
David Burkus is a best-selling author, a sought-after speaker, and a business school professor, a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review. He's delivered a number of keynotes to Fortune 500 companies, and his TED Talk has been viewed nearly two million times. You know, I had to do nearly 200 episodes of a podcast to have that many downloads, by the way. Uh, David makes his second appearance on Read to Lead today, having first joined us uh, just uh, over two years ago to talk about his then new book, Under New Management. Love that book. Uh, His latest book is called Friend of a Friend, Understanding the Hidden Networks that Can Transform Your Life and Your Career. David, welcome back to Read to Lead. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You are so good at that. That intro just sort of like, you know, feels good. I feel like I'm on major, major radio or about to go on like a CBS this morning. You you rock that. <laughs> well, thank you. You're, you're making my face turn red. I'm blushing. <laughs> <laughs> well, good thing it's a podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. You can't see me. Can't see me. Well, as I read the introduction to, to David's book, I learned right away that this is not just a book about networking. I've read a few of those. In fact, uh, we had somebody on the show not too long ago to talk about this topic, uh, but But David's book is more about how networks actually work. Why is it important for us, David, to understand that exactly? Yeah. And this is it's an important distinction, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. there there are so many books out there on how to I call them sort of the networking advice books. Right. And Mm -hmm. previously, the genre of networking books was literally just all networking advice books. So now I'm trying to sort of move them into their own category Mm -hmm. single handedly, mind you, not like, you know. (laughs) It's not like I have audacious dreams or anything um, and, and then create sort of a new subcategory of these books, which is it's less about networks and more about understanding how they work. The, the reason is that I think so many of us uh, when, like we think about networking almost like a four letter word. Right. I mean, it's a 10 letter word, but we think about it like a four letter word. And we, we picture going to that networking event. Right. We picture reading one of those advice books and then trying to put something into practice mm. and then feeling really weird and sleazy and inauthentic. When like, well, no wonder, because you're t- trying to be someone else in that moment. You read their advice book and now you're trying to be them. Of course, you're going to feel inauthentic. And then we end up sort of getting a bad taste out of our mouth. And I mean, I have, I have good news for most people, which is that if you adopt a sort of a different mindset that you don't have a network, you don't own your network, you can't grow your network. It's not yours. You exist inside of a network already. We all do. The network of the community that we live in, the industry that we work in, uh, depending on the size of the company that we're in. I mean, it's all one network that we're a part of. And what I found when researching this book is that the best networkers aren't people who put the best advice into practice. They're people who figured out how does this network that's around me work and how do I navigate it appropriately in a way that's authentic to me? And so that became sort of the big revelation to me is that the world does not need another book of networking advice. The world needs a book that goes, here's how the network you're in operates. Now you can figure out what's authentic to you to navigate inside that network. Well, reading it certainly caused me to rethink how I view uh, the network that I'm in. And and right off the bat, it's this idea that our old friends can be better than our our new friends. Explain this this concept of, of, of weak ties. Most of us, when we think about networking, like we, we think about the primary function of it is meeting new people, right? Mm-hmm. Meeting strangers, maybe turning them into friends, et cetera. And, and there's some validity to that, right? Because it's the people that you don't know that are going to be more likely to introduce you to other people you don't know, opportunities you haven't heard about, et cetera. Your close friends, a lot of times, I mean, it's important to have close friends. I'm not advocating sort of this ignore your friend's life, but <laughs> most of them are connected to all the same people you're connected to. They read the same content that you read. They think very similar to you. The, the 
term that Ronald Burt, the sociologist, uses is redundancy, right? They're, they're redundant. I mean, mm-hmm. they're important in your life for social support and that sort of thing. But in terms of new opportunities, new information, et cetera, they're redundant. And so what most of us tend to do is we jump from those close contacts to that total strangers thing. And we neglect what I sort of call this hidden network, which are the weak ties, the dormant ties, and the people that are one degree of separation out from you. And so, you know, weak ties and dormant ties are people that a weak tie is someone that you know, but you don't know that well, right? So maybe you see them at the gym and you might spot each other every once in a while, but like, you know, his name and maybe what he does and that's it. Um, or like they work in your company, but they work on a different floor. And so you only ever see them when there's cake in the break room, right? These are your weak ties. Your dormant ties are people that were close to you, but for some reason or another, that relationship fell by the wayside. Maybe you moved or they got a new job or, or what have you. And because they're somewhere else in the network, right? Because you don't know them that well, uh, because you haven't talked to them in a long time, they have a higher percentage chance of having access to that new information, new opportunities, new referrals, et cetera, similar to strangers, but they're not strangers. You don't have to do that weird elevator pitch thing. You don't have to feel all awkward at a networking event. Like you can get access to all of the information that you need when you need a new opportunity or new information from these weak and dormant ties. And they're not, it doesn't take this weird process to build rapport with them because they're already your friends. And, you know, some of us know this. I'm not I'm not the first person to talk about weak ties. Some of that has migrated over into the networking advice books. But the truth is, most of the time they define a weak tie as a friend of a friend. And that's actually not accurate. Or they they people leave with the advice of like, OK, cool. So when you're looking for a new job, hit up your old colleagues. Like eh, <laughs> the trick is to make it a regular habit to be checking in with those weak and dormant ties so they don't feel dormant. So that relationship stays sort of on the surface. You don't have to talk to them every day. Mm. Right. But but that you're communicating with them often enough and checking in with them often enough and helping them when they need help so that when the time comes that you need that opportunity, it's just one more in a series of conversations you have with your weak ties every few months. You know, it was a bit surprising to me to realize that the research suggests that the most connected people inside a tight group within a single industry are less valuable than the people who bridge the gaps uh, between groups and and sort of broker, to use your term, information kind of back and forth. What What are some real world examples of that? Yeah. So one of my favorite examples in friend of a friend, I talk about Jane McGonigal, right? And you may not have ever heard of Jane McGonigal, but, um, she was a game designer. She's actually really interesting. She has a a sister who's a PhD psychologist, but Jane McGonigal was a video game designer and she designed a bunch of different games for entertainment purposes, but also sort of social good games. Like she designed a game for the UN, et cetera. And then this really weird thing happened to her. She got a concussion. She was literally in her kitchen, um, bent down to pick something up, came up, hit her head on the cupboard. And like originally, you know, that's the kind of thing you don't think is going to be that bad, but it gets worse and worse over time. And now doctors are talking to her about the months of recovery that it's going to take to overcome this concussion. And, you know, if you, if you know a little bit about head trauma, it's a really dark time. Like you, you end up, um, just constantly in pain. You're, you're sometimes vomiting because of light. You don't want to go outside. You can get really depressed. And in fact, Jane got to this point where she goes, I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to turn this into a game. I'm going to use what I know about game design. And so she starts designing this game that, that gamifies, it tricks her into doing the things she needs to do to get better and avoiding the things that she needs to do to not. And and it helps her feel much better. And so now she starts taking her show on the road in a sense. And she actually started partnering with people, not from the game community, but with the mental health and medicine and and psychology communities to help like rectify the game for 
sort of alter it a bit and make and start doing studies on the game to prove that you can actually sort of cure some long term illnesses or at least help people cope better with those illnesses by playing this game that now she calls super better as in I don't want to just get better. I want to get super better. I want to be better than I was before. So she's built this bridge between the game community and the mental health and medicine community that never would have happened had she not had this injury and unlocked sort of a tremendous amount of value. And we tend to think, like I was saying earlier about redundancy, we tend to think that like the lesson is I got to know everybody in this network. But eventually, because of that redundancy thing, you get to this tipping point where every new person you meet doesn't really provide much extra value for you and much extra attempts to connect. You can't be that person on the edge of a community screaming, let's all partner with this in a new other community you've never heard of. You're going to look like a crazy person. <laughs> but eventually you get deep enough into one community that spending time making new contacts in that community becomes redundant. And you're actually better now looking for who does this community need to partner with? Where can I be the source of information that flows back and forth between these two worlds? And you end up unlocking a tremendous amount of value for both communities like Jay McGonigal did. But you also end up having a lot of that value spill back over onto you and your career and your success. You know, if, if, if having been a member of the traditional workforce, David, has taught me anything, it's that there's a danger in working in silos. That's something that we were aware of, but we just did it anyway. That's just how we worked. <laughs> uh, maybe that mirrors your experience as well. Maybe it doesn't. But, but David says there's an argument to be made for spending time, at least in moderation, in, in clusters. So, so what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, silos are definitely a bad thing. Right. But I think we I think we took it a little too far. Right. <laughs> I mean, I I love like silos, politics and turf wars. Patrick Lencioni is one of his mm. classics. Right. And, and I definitely agree that most organizations are a little too sort of proprietary with, OK, it's, it's our department. It's our leg of the org chart, et cetera. But I think we can overcorrect and we can go. Oh, we need to be a totally flat organization. We need everybody to know everybody. Uh, we need a pure sort of egalitarian network. And, and the truth is, in, in those sort of networks, information doesn't flow as properly. Mm. Uh, there's not as much in innovation because people don't feel um, a level of safety to sort of share. So you you can't ignore a silo altogether. The, the trick is, I talk about this a bit in the book in a, in a different chapter, is to do what uh, General Stanley McChrystal did with the war in Iraq, which is to create sort of teams of teams where you do have your team, but you're rotating a few people around in such a way that each team knows someone on the other team. In your own life, what this means is that you need to sort of balance the amount of time that you're spending in that cluster or community of practice, uh, which is the term that I sort of like to use. You need those sort of groups to fall back on. But then you also need to break out of that and take your work on the road. The, the best analogy, and unfortunately I thought of it after mm. uh, I finished the book, <laughs> so it's not in there. The, the best analogy is to think of silos or think of clusters as a harbor. It's a great place for a ship to be for a period of time, but you can't stay there. You're meant for the sea. Mm. Very good. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, David, we talked with uh, Scott Gerber, who wrote the book Super Connector. And, and I think being a super connector is, is something most of us feel, gee, that would be great if I could be that. But I think most of us also probably view that as being out of our out of our reach. But you say it's possible for most of us to do that if we do it with care, to grow our network large enough to be a, a super connector. How does the average Joe make that a reality? Yeah. So this is, I have to confess, this is something that I was a little bummed when I saw Scott's book uh, for pre-order on Amazon because super connector was a term. It's a term from network science originally. Mm. Um, and it was a term we were thinking about using as a title, um, ah. but he beat us to it. <laughs> <laughs> so there, I mean, there's, there's really, there's two things here. The first is that, um, and we sort of hinted at this earlier, is that if you don't want it, you don't actually need 
to be a super connector. Like in the book, we talk about Kevin Bacon, for example, and six degrees of Kevin Bacon. And every, you would think that because you can connect anyone in Hollywood to anyone else through Kevin Bacon, I don't know if you've ever played this game or not. Mm-hmm. Um, we would think of Kevin as a super connector. The truth is he is the 669th most connected person in Hollywood. <laughs> That's pretty bad, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but it speaks, it, it speaks to the nature of networks that because of the levels of sort of interconnectivity, you probably already have between your close contacts, your weak ties, your dormant ties, and people that are one or two degrees of separation out from you, you probably have access to everyone that you need to have access to. That said, as we talk about in the book, being that sort of super connector person is possible. And the mistake that a lot of people make is they look at these people who have a disproportionate number of connections and they think like, oh, well, they have 3,000 people in their network and I have 600. I'm never going to get there. Mm. And what they what they don't see is, is two things. Number one, those people usually got there by taking care of the network, not running around meeting strangers, but by mm. taking care of the network, introducing people to each other inside the network, sort of instead of trying to just run up the score on number of connections, they were trying to deliberately move themselves closer and closer to the center of the network that they were in. Right. Mm. So that's, that's sort of step one by, by kind of interconnecting. The other thing that happens, we talk about this in the chapter right after it is the truth is there's a bit of a a flywheel effect or a gravitational pull to Mm. becoming a super connector. Right. So in the, in network science, this is referred to as preferential attachment, which is a fancy, fancy term um, for, you know, that, that flywheel effect, because what happens is as you start moving yourself to the center of the network, as you become one of the more connected people in that community, you make it much more likely that when new people enter the community, you're going to get introduced to them. So it's almost sort of a passive income type of thing, right? Like an investment, you make a certain amount of, of investment over time. And then eventually that compound interest starts working for you. Uh, It's the same way here. And so you might, uh, what I think the real lesson of this is, is not only is it possible, but if you're looking in frustration at the people like Scott who are, one of the things you're missing is that they've been putting in a lot of work over a long period of time. And while it seems like everything just comes so easily to them, it comes so easily to them because they're now getting the dividends on all of that work ahead of time. Mm. And so not only is it sort of, is, is it possible, it's something that manifests over time. And so don't dis- get discouraged if it looks like you're still having to put in the work and it's happening easily to other people. If you're new on this road, if you're new and traveling down this journey, don't fault the people that are a little bit further behind. Be encouraged by their success because that's going to come to you eventually, too, if you keep working. You're probably familiar with those television shows of the masked magician who's revealing the secrets behind the trick, how it's really done. <laughs> Uh, that was kind of like chapter eight uh, for me. Talk about the benefits, uh, David, of focusing on a few of the right connections and this, uh, as you call it, illusion of majority. I thought this was fascinating. Yeah. So this is um, this is where the book flips from being sort of a career or sales or general sort of advice book into a straight marketing book. Right. <laughs> is this one weird chapter? Um the the in in front of in the chapter you're talking about we we look at a couple different people who um seemed really really popular for a time but in reality kind of weren't and so we look at Tim Ferriss who I'm sure everybody knows about now but it's hard to believe there was a time when very few people knew him because by design he was sort of this hidden vitamin salesman behind um, this kind of network of of. Uh, other businesses that he strung together to create his business. And and then he decides to write a book about how he did all of that. And now he knows, okay, I need to be famous. Right. And so he (laughs) does this really interesting thing. He goes, okay, who is the target audience for this book? Well, it's 18 to 35 year old tech savvy males, which is what he was at the time. Right. Okay. Now where do they gather? 
who do the, who are they influenced by? Who's the most sort of connected people? And he starts targeting just those, those blogs that tech savvy, 18 to 35 year old tech savvy males, um, read. And this is something he doesn't do like right off the bat with just spam email and then forget about it. He's building those relationships over time so that when the book comes out of the sort of 30 or 40 most frequently looked at blogs from this demographic, he's got uh, bloggers who are wanting to write about him in 20, 25 of them. So suddenly, like if you're an 18 to 35 year old tech savvy male, suddenly Tim Ferriss is everywhere. Mm. If you're not, he's still not there, right? It would be six to 12 months before four hour work week would get such sort of a critical mass that Mm. the general audience is aware of it. But in the initial launch stages, he looked like he was everywhere, even though he wasn't. And it was actually after that happened that network scientists sort of explained, okay, what's going on? And they, they described, as you said, this majority illusion. The idea is that if you think about a network, again, not you, you don't have a network, you exist inside of one. If you think about the network that you exist inside of, one of the things you should probably figure out is who are those super connectors? Who are those people that if I, if they're talking about me, suddenly I look like everyone is talking about me. Mm-hmm. We're tribal people, right? We, we take our cues off of what other people are doing. And as a result, if we look to the left and to the right of us and the most connected people are singing the praises of a certain person or a certain product or a certain company, whatever it is, then we start to get this illusion that, oh man, everyone is talking about them. And sometimes it's not even many. It can be three people in a network if it's the right three people. And so it really speaks to, again, not thinking about, oh, I need to grow my network, meaning I need to grow the number of people I'm connected to, and then I need to broadcast out to all of them. It's, I exist inside of a network. Who are the people that I need to know? Who are the people that I need to cultivate relationships with to do what, to accomplish what I need to accomplish? And one of the ways you can do that is through this majority illusion. Mm. Uh, fascinating chapter. I, I was, I was enthralled <laughs> through the whole book, uh, but, but that chapter grabbed my attention. I'll be honest. This is the one that I'm most worried about, right? Because I'm trying to put this into practice with how I market sort of this book. And so I guess we'll, we'll find out, uh, in the next couple of weeks, whether or not it worked. If I, if you're listening to this and you're like, Oh man, Dave Burkus is on seven of the podcasts that I listened to, then it worked and I did it right. Um, if it doesn't, um, I'd send me an email and tell me what other podcasts you listen to so I can go after them. <laughs> I love it. Well, David says that, that we uh, tend to assume that, that having a large and, and growing network equates to surrounding ourselves with people with diverse perspectives. Uh, but that's often not the case at all. The fact is opposites rarely attract, do they, David? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is a really interesting one because we're, you know, it's, it's the the best way I've thought to say this. And again, after I finished writing the book is it's 2018. And if you haven't figured out that you do need a diverse network around you, that you need people (laughs) from diverse perspectives and backgrounds, et cetera, if you haven't figured that out by now, I can't help you. What, (laughs) What I can do is point out that while we think that we might have that, the truth is in a lot of, a lot of situations, we don't. So in friend of a friend, we talk about this. It's a fancy $12 word. We talk about this principle of homophily, (laughs) which is like attracts like, right? Opposites do not attract. Birds of a feather flock together, et cetera. But what's interesting is we find out that it's actually more of a network problem than anything else. So you might know that you need a diverse set of connections around you. You might know that you need to hear different voices from different perspectives. This this is especially true in sort of leaders, right? You know that you need these perspectives and you might think you have them. But in reality, if your close contacts are so similar to you, a lot of times the people that you're getting introduced to are also similar to you, right? They're not as diverse as you think. Just because they're new doesn't mean they're diverse. So what happens, and we we have a couple different network science studies that look at this longitudinally, which is another fancy word for over a long period of time. And they show that that homophily, this, this clustering towards same, 
happens over a period of time, less as a desire to only be around people like us, but as just sort of a natural network effect, because as we meet new people, if they came through those close contacts, we are more likely to just meet people that are also self-similar. The lesson here, especially for leaders, is that you really need to audit who are the people that I'm surrounding myself with, who are the 12 or 24 people that I talk to the most often, Mm -hmm. and then how different from me are they? You're probably going to be surprised to find that a lot of them are not. You will find two or three, and the lesson is that you probably need to start spending a disproportionate amount of time with those people because they're the perspectives that you need uh, more often. They're the relationships you need to cultivate, and they're the source of new connections that you need more often than the people that are similar to you. But it's so uncomfortable sometimes. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, it, it, it totally is, right? And this is the that's what's interesting about this is we know that we need this, yeah. but we're battling up against a, a natural human tendency to want to be around people that think like us because if they think like us, clearly they're brilliant, right? <laughs> um, it, we have that sort of natural human tendency. What, what I think was the most fascinating is that that's actually not the primary driver of this sort of long-term echo chamber effect. The primary driver is just who else we're meeting because of that smaller, lesser driver to want to talk to people who agree with us more often. It's the over the long term, diversity is a network problem, not a sort of bigotry problem. I mean, definitely it still exists. And like I said, though, it's 2018. If you don't believe that, I I can't help you. You're you're a foregone cause there. (laughs) But even if you believe that, okay, this is something I need to actively cultivate, there's a larger network dilemma that we need to solve by spending a deliberate and disproportionate amount of time with people that don't agree with us. Mm, definitely. Well, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you that uh, aren't directly related to the book, David. Uh, first, is there anything else from the book you want to make sure we know? I think the biggest lesson of the book is that networking is not about meeting strangers. It's not about running up the count of people you're connected to on LinkedIn, right? Those things already made you uncomfortable. (laughs) What you do have to do is get a little bit more conscious of the people that you're around because your network affects you and your success in ways that are far more powerful than you know, and in ways that don't actually involve you. They just involve you figuring out how to move properly inside this network. I'm giving a a talk in about a month on this idea of growing your influence. I plan to uh, refer to your book often uh, during that talk because I I learned a lot. I think I can I can apply to that to that talk. Oh, no, please, please do. Um, Let me know. I can I can uh, send you some copies to throw at the audience as you do that. Oh, Um, uh, I mean, actually, they're kind of heavy. Don't throw them. Hand them, maybe. (laughs) Well, uh, speaking of of public talks, it's something uh, obviously you've proven to be to be very good at uh, having that uh, that TED talk alone with the two million views. is just one example of that. I'd be curious to know how you prepare for talks like this. What do you do to make sure that when you deliver a talk, it's going to be impactful and, and memorable? Yeah. I mean, in in one sense, I'm really lucky, which is that I'm an author first. Mm. And so most people, when they invite me to come speak somewhere, they want me to talk about a certain book. Like there's very few times that they're like, can you pair insights from this one and insights from this one (laughs) together? I mean, it does happen, but probably one of the best pieces of advice I ever got on this, and I use it often, is that um, I remember having a discussion with uh, Mitch Joel about the nature of speaking and how different people have different metaphors and he uses music and and what actually he uses is there are some people who have their speech like a symphony where every single note is scripted and you're trying to get everybody together and it's never going to change and then you have like bands like rock bands that usually their performance is a set list and it's going to change every night but you can usually you see it like you go to a rock concert and you can see a piece of paper taped to the floor that says the order of the songs that are going to happen right we're going to open with where the streets have no name and then we're going to do one and then we'll do, you know, that, that sort of a thing. 
And I kind of look at it the same way. So when I'm preparing for a talk, usually I've got an intro and a close for each book that are, you know, sort of well-practiced and well-rehearsed and speak to that point and that big takeaway that I want people to have. And then based on conversations with the event organizers or people who are going to be in the audience, et cetera, I sort of build the set list of what stories, what studies, what takeaways um, do people need. And as a result, it's kind of always a little bit different every time mm. and it's customized to those people, but it's also always falling back on information that I'm aware of so I can talk about sort of with confidence and I know where the pauses are supposed to be and the jokes and that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's really been that idea of um, I treat it like a set list. If I were to give like a talk on friend of a friend uh, that they covered every single thing in the whole book, it would take like three hours. So what I do to prepare <laughs> is I just go, OK, of those three hours, what 55 minutes are we going to pick? And that makes so much sense. So you talk about having sort of a, a well-rehearsed or, or standard open and closed. John Acuff talks about the importance of that first 60 seconds. And oftentimes it's, it's the ending they, they end up remembering, right? It's the last thing they, they heard. And so to, to make sure those things are well-rehearsed in practice makes sense. And then adjust in the middle, depending on who you're giving the, the talk to. I like that. Well, I'm all about book recommendations. And I'd love to know, uh, since we last talked, and it's been a couple of years, you know, what, what have you read specifically in that time that has you know, impacted you? Man, um, I, I, gotta, I should have listened to the old episode to remember what, <laughs> <clears throat> what I said. I, um, I probably, I, I will say this, I probably in that interview recommended a book called The Opposable Mind by Roger Martin. Mm. Um, and I have, uh, even though I, I said it then, I have read it because I reread it about once every year or two years. Mm. Um, and it's a book about how the best sort of thinkers, the best leaders, the best influencers are able to hold two different mental models in their mind at the same time, two different contradictory thoughts and not go, okay, is this an either? or, but how do we sort of pair them together and leverage the strengths of each one, et cetera. And, um, it's a really, I mean, Stephen Covey sort of scratches at this with the idea of the win-win or the not, it's not yes or no, it's both end. I I didn't get that right, but you know, whatever Stephen (laughs) Covey said, Roger sort of takes a much deeper dive on it. And I I read it, like I said, every once in a while, I probably haven't read it for about 18 months, but I read it right before I read his follow-up. He finally published a follow-up called creating great choices, which is much more of a how-to of this opposable mind idea. So, so those would be two. And then probably in the last few months, I finally got to read Daniel Pink's When, which is Mm. his new one. I mean, I love everything that Dan writes, but When is actually sort of the most prescriptive he's ever been in terms of like, here's the science, but do these things. And the most individual like drive is great. But unless you're sort of a manager or you're trying to figure out why you hate your job, it's not there's not a ton there Mm. to sell as human is great in terms of influencing people. But when is like every single person in the world can get better at how they time certain decisions, how they structure their day, all of those sort of things. And so I loved it for that reason. Uh, it's funny you mentioned that. That was our, our pick of the month for March in the uh, Read to Lead University Book Club. Loved that book. Had a great discussion on it. And then had a chance to meet Dan at a book signing uh, here in Nashville for the first time and ran into our mutual friend, uh, Tim Grawl. Oh, yeah. I remember he told me he was going to be there. And I was I was actually emailing uh, Dan that day, too. And I think I said, like, say hi to Tim. Say hi to Jeff. <laughs> say hi to all these people that I know on Facebook are going to your event. I just heard back from Dan yesterday as we've been talking about getting him back on the show. He was first here like four years ago and he, he wrote back to me and said can we look at like after july <laughs> he's, he's, he's pretty he's pretty uh, busy uh, to say the least well i wanted to give you a chance with the book about to launch i know you've got this this sort of pre-ordering promotion going on would, would you care to, to enlighten us and tell us what's what's involved there and how we might uh, uh, take advantage of that yeah so we've got a actually a couple different things so the, the book is out may 1st but before then and during all of that whole thing we've got a suite of different bonuses that help people put into practice the ideas in the book. That's re- 
really, really easy if you get it and you forward your receipt to pre-order at davidberkus.com. Um, we've got all sorts of stuff. What I want to do, because I, I'm a fan of your show. I listen to your show, which is always a little weird because it means I'm going to listen to myself here in a little bit, <laughs> is I put together, uh, I don't know, what's the right way to say it? If, if you also listen to the show, if there's this huge fan of this show and you listen all the way to the end, you're part of a very sort of special group of people. I like to call them the end of the podcast club, right? You obviously <laughs> like to this content because um, you listened all the way through. So one of those pre-order bonuses I want to give to the whole audience just because, just as a, as a oh. thank you. It's this course that we put together called the How to Connect course, and it's based on the research and friend of a friend. And it's specific to how do you give and get the introductions you need? So navigating the network, how do you give, how do you introduce two people? How do you seek out the introductions you need, et cetera? And everybody who's listening, everybody who's part of the end of the podcast club, it's all, it's an all audio course. So if you like podcasting and audio, you're going to love it. If you hate it, I don't know how you got in the end of the podcast club. <laughs> um, but that is at davidberkuscom slash read to lead, totally free gift. You could just download it off that page. It's live now. And so whether you, I hope people get the book in triplicate. I hope they give it to their friends and friends of friends. But the truth is, I hope you download this course. It's free content that everybody can benefit from because I'd love to keep that conversation going. So davidberkuscom slash read to lead my special gift for the end of the podcast club. Go get it. That is amazing. Thank you. That's awesome. The book, again, is called Friend of a Friend, Understanding the Hidden Networks that Can Transform Your Life and Your Career. Get to know him. His name is David Burkus. David, it was a pleasure to have you back. It's been too long. Thank you for, for being here and, and, and sharing your knowledge and your expertise. Thank you so much for having me. And, and you're right. It's been, it's been a bit too long. So let's keep the conversation going beyond here. Not just you, but with the listeners, too. I'd love to hear your thoughts and what resonated with you when you check it out. What a treat. I knew I liked that guy. Now I like him even more. For that resource David mentioned, I've got you all taken care of for not only that resource, but the books he referenced and anything else you want to check in on that we talked about. Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash 211 for episode 211. You'll find everything you need there. Again, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 211. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast in general, would love a rating and review from you. Consider doing so in iTunes, readtoleadpodcast.com slash iTunes, just like Dr. Brad Miller did, who says the Read to Lead podcast challenges him to think and go deep. Thank you, Dr. Miller, for your five-star review. Really appreciate that. Do you like the idea of reading a book along with a group of other professionals just like you and coming together virtually to talk about it toward the end of the month? Well, if that intrigues you, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what's in store at readtoleaduniversity.com. My monthly book club, I'd love to have you be a part of it. Again, readtoleaduniversity.com. And finally, I'd like to say thanks to FreshBooks Cloud Accounting Software for sponsoring this episode. To find out more about that free trial they have available to you, visit freshbooks.com slash read to lead and put read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Well, that does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 